Hello, this is episode 4.4. Winter is here. Snow is on the ground, at least for now. A couple of episodes ago, when I was talking about Noah MacDonald and his passing, I forgot to tell my tribute joke to him. There were particular jokes that he liked to tell his guests on his video podcast, No MacDonald Live, and one of them was about him having gained a great deal of weight at one point. He'd say that he was doing it for a movie, and when asked what movie, he'd say, well, it's not a particular movie, but they always need a fat guy in movies. I'm using his phrases here. This is my tribute joke that I thought of after his passing. Told with all love and respect. Norm died for a movie. It wasn't for a particular movie, but they always need dead guys in movies. Turns out they don't. They have plenty of dead guys. Love you, Norm, and thank you for helping me and many others laugh about painful things. There's a reason why many old poems no longer play, why they no longer have, if they ever did have, power to really get to us. That reason is that so many of them are about first world problems. They didn't have this term back then, in those earlier centuries. But it applies, doesn't it? As part of my journey through the history of recorded music, I have listened to every single recording of poetry mentioned in the pages of the Gramophone magazine from 1923 to the 1950s, somewhere thereabouts. I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of readings of poems from earlier centuries in particular. And as I was exercising early this morning, somewhere between 5 and 6 a.m., I was listening to some of these poems that were still on my backlog list and there were ones by Wordsworth and John Donne. This thought about first world problems came inevitably to mind as I listened to many of these. For example, John Donne wrote a poem where he rages at the sun, the sun in the sky, you know, the sun in space, because it determines the comings and goings of lovers, and casts an imperious eye, and controls our lives. I would like to ask, exactly how privileged does a person have to be in order to spend his time, first of all, getting annoyed by the comings and goings of the sun, a natural phenomenon, that an adult should be able to accept, and then painstakingly by hand using 
maybe a quill and ink, write down a long poem about why the sun is so annoying because it doesn't follow the poet's whims, apparently. That seems to be what he would like. At one point, he calls the sun a saucy, pedantic wretch. Another question that inevitably comes to mind, if we think of this not as a classic and not of the author as a classic author of poetry, this other question is, was he simply just spinning his creative wheels because he felt like he needed to write something because he was John Donne, the poet, but he didn't have anything inspired to write about? So instead, well, I haven't studied his life, so I don't know if he was married, especially at that particular point, but imagine that he's waking up and his wife is there and the wife wants to sleep in a bit more. Maybe the poet isn't doing much of the housework because he's too busy writing his poetry. And John Donne, the poet, gets up and notices the sun is shining. How awful the sun, how dare it shine when it pleases. And so he goes to the window and while he may not shake his fist at the sun, he starts mumbling or ranting aloud about why do you have to be so regular and why do you go the way you go and the wife is listening to this guy ranting at the window and this is a first world problem ladies and gentlemen it's a first world problem if that's something that causes rage in you that the sun works the way the sun works. Maybe it's time to go do something more useful or create something with more potential to make someone feel better. I will now undercut everything I said by pointing out that who's to say that he meant all that entirely seriously. Maybe later times have given it such a ponderous air and readings of it. Certainly this reading that I was listening to this morning while exercising, it was the kind of reading that takes this type of tone, which was very common back then in these readings, recorded readings. There was like a quivery voice adopted by some of the worst offenders, but if not exactly that, then it was this kind of approach. Wherefore must this orb of yellow come to blight the sleep-seeking eye soon, all too soon, when the weary traveller would yet repose in somnolent quietude? Yet that self-same imperious gaze of the rotund celestial doth bring renewal and new life, even to the most reluctant of hearts, which would fain not be disturbed by yon ever-regularly looming great ball of fire. This was a typical way to read poems that got onto records back then. It's interesting to consider where would that have come from. 
why would people think that that's the way to read these poems? It can only have formed as a product of a particular section of civilization who thinks that in order to be great art, humor must be absent. But as Johann Huizinger has pointed out, play can very well include seriousness, whereas seriousness excludes play. Fortunately, now there are all kinds of approaches to poetry and how they are read. There's a short vignette that I wrote when I was too young to be writing about such things, really. I hadn't yet experienced enough life to know what I was talking about. Back then, it seemed to be the way I said it. I don't remember the exact quote, and it's not worth looking up from my files, but it went something like this. If you're lost with no one beside you, you're lost. If you're lost with someone beside you, you're not. To that I would say now, it's not always so. Maybe even worse than being lost alone is to be lost with someone who isn't the right person to be lost with. It's not difficult to tell, you really know inside if that's so. From how things are, whether there's true love and affection and respect both ways. And also from the consequences of being together, you can tell whether that's the right thing for you. By that I mean that if being with this other person makes you little by little let go of your greatest dreams and aspirations in life, if for example you're creative, artistic, and you end up doing creative things less and less and ever more rarely, that's a clear sign of how things are. If you're increasingly in a narrower world where the other person's anger or disapproval is the fence that marks the outside boundary of your world, then that's the time to kick down the fence and find life again. I was almost tempted to say at this point some thoughts from the Twilight Zone. I've continued watching those episodes of the original series from the Blu-ray set. And I'm very glad that finally it's being so openly discussed how much the Twilight Zone grew out of the creations of Ray Bradbury and his imagination. It's very much something that couldn't have happened if Ray Bradbury's work hadn't existed. And I'm very glad that the commentaries acknowledge this and discuss it at great length. But the interaction of those two giants, Ray Bradbury and Rod Selling, and uh, The Twilight Zone, and uh, Ray Bradbury's own later series, The Ray Bradbury Theatre, is too complex to discuss here. But I'm just glad 
things ended up working out the way they did. Both of them got to do their own things in the end. And the world is richer for the work that they both did and the people that they were while still here. And with the passing of Stephen Sondheim, I was reminded of a particularly amusing episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, the Larry David series, in which there is an Officer Krupke. Anyway, I'll sign off by saying, Krup you. Good night. Take care.